Welcome to High Potential with Indeed. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is full of grey areas, uncertainty and quite often fear. Higher Potential with Indeed is here to demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible. Conversations. Groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Jay Munro, Senior Country Marketing Manager of Australia at Indeed. And in this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion, to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Welcome to the second episode of Higher Potential with Indeed. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing welcoming Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. While many organisations may think they've nailed their diversity and inclusion initiatives, their employees are telling a completely different story. In our latest survey conducted earlier this year, Indeed uncovered that one in 10 working Australians believe that COVID-19 has made their organisations worse at managing diversity and inclusion. And this is even higher among working Australians from minority backgrounds, such as one in five workers with a disability and almost a fifth of working Indigenous Australians. Indeed recognises that there's still a lot of work to be done to create a truly welcoming and inclusive work environment for First Nations people, and conversations like these are a start. In this episode, we speak with Jackie Bainbridge, Head of Indigenous Affairs, Diversity and Inclusion at Sodexo, to learn more about what companies can do to offer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples opportunities for sustainable employment, career development, training, support, and culturally sensitive work environments. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me. Now, can we start off, Jackie, with you sharing a little bit about what your role is at Sodexo? Of course. So my role at Sodexo is Head of Indigenous Affairs, Diversity and Inclusion, as you just said. Ultimately, it's about ensuring that all people across our organisation feel welcomed and able to bring their whole selves to work every day. Sodexo globally has made a number of commitments around diversity, including towards employment of refugees, around making 100% of our roles accessible for people with a disability, around gender balance and ensuring we've got balanced teams and management teams, and of course, around reconciliation. So I bring that to life every day in Australia and I get to work with an incredible bunch of internal partners, external partners and suppliers to make sure that we're working towards a fully inclusive organisation. That's really good to hear and we're certainly really happy to hear of more Australian organisations or or those in Australia uh, being more open and supportive of diversity and inclusion practices. In terms of Indigenous employees, why is having Indigenous employees important in your organisation? 
Yeah, I think this is a great question and I should probably context it by saying that I'm still relatively new to Sodexo. So a lot of the work that has been done has been done by my predecessors and we wouldn't be where we are today without them. But I'm really fortunate. I get to work with an amazing bunch of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are really committed to bringing some of our targets to life. When we focus on employment and inclusion um, and why it's so important for us at Sodexo, I think that, you know, the research in this space, it's pretty clear, right? That having diverse teams benefits us, whether it's about bringing in new perspectives, when you hire different people from diverse backgrounds, whether it's around that fostering of innovation and creativity to make sure that you're not kind of having the same think, uh, everyone's thinking slightly differently. Um, But it also really drives employee engagement. So when employees feel empowered, they're recognised, they're celebrated, and therefore they're more engaged bringing like these questions, it's about why do people want to come and work for my company? And surely you just want to work for a company where every day you feel recognised and you feel celebrated. Um, Specifically, if we look at it from an Indigenous perspective, it's about ensuring that corporate Australia is also taking that real leadership towards reconciliation. I think that corporate Australia is probably making up some of the gaps that government hasn't played in this space for a long time. So it's about ensuring that Indigenous Australians have those opportunities to be heard, listened to and provided the opportunities that for too long were taken away from them. Yeah, I agree. And I guess looking at the last, uh, well, more than a year now, we were unfortunately impacted by COVID-19. Part of our research showed that because of COVID-19, working Australians started having their hours reduced. So it was almost a quarter had their hours reduced. But it seems that Indigenous Australians were disproportionately impacted with almost half having their hours reduced. What other impacts has COVID-19 had on Indigenous Australians uh, and the communities? Yeah, it's really difficult to actually genuinely know because we don't actually have a lot of data pre-COVID on the representation and Um, I guess, employment status of Indigenous Australians. Um, So it's actually become one of the biggest barriers. Other recent um, research has shown that it's been really difficult to understand how much job markets have been impacted um, for Indigenous Australians. But you're right, we do know that proportionally Indigenous Australians have been, whether that's because they work in the tourism sector or they have um, worked in the hospitality industry, But if I look at the positives, because I always try to find the rainbow out of every dark cloud, um, I think that this is also the opportunity for us to look at what we can be doing more as we move forward. So Indigenous Australians, even pre-COVID, were still not represented fully in our workplace. So as we go back to, you know, the what is the new norm in this space, um, we know that it's a great job market at the moment. So I think that this is actually the opportunity for us to make sure that as we are recruiting we're also recruiting for Indigenous employees. Um, In my experience, and this is just my experience, but I think that if you're just putting your ads through your usual recruitment methods, and of course you might have your Indigenous imagery, um, but actually you're not going to really be shifting the dial around Indigenous engagement and Indigenous employment. So I'd really urge companies, and it's something that we're really looking at doing, is, um, you know, as we are bouncing back from this, as we're continuing to increase, we need to think about the ways that how do the candidates get through the door? And particularly, 
particularly for Indigenous. So what are the barriers that Indigenous people may have faced? So we know pre-COVID um, and especially during COVID, but asking Indigenous people to complete lengthy job applications may not always have cut the mustard. They may not have access to the technology. They may not have had the skills that would get them see pushed through to the, the process. So when we're looking at this, we need to look at how we can diversify the recruitment processes and make sure that we um, start to tap into those different talent pools. The other thing that I would just add into that is that I feel that um, across the nation, one of the biggest barriers for Indigenous employment pre during COVID and post-COVID world is um, actually around rates of incarceration. We know that so many companies are not willing to take on people who have um, got a criminal record and unfortunately we also know the stats show that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have a much higher representation um, in the Department of Justice. So I think that we need to also think about how we can be looking at different avenues in that post-COVID world um, to really make sure that when, you know, there is no barriers to that employment. Overall, if I can kind of sum that up, I would say that even if we don't necessarily know exactly how Indigenous Australians were impacted during COVID, I would say that we've got the opportunity now to shape our futures um, in this post-COVID world when everything's a bit more flexible and we can, we're open to doing things a little bit more differently um, to make sure that we are tapping into that real diversity of potential employees for companies. I, I want to jump back to something you said in there you know, in the recruitment process, some employers will just post images that they feel represents the Indigenous community or, or shows that they're supportive. And that could potentially, I guess, border on tokenism in a way. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that... Um I'm not against imagery, right? Let me be very clear. I actually think imagery can play a really significant part of that welcoming processes. But a bit like policies are, I guess, um, equaling status quo, um, policies and imagery help people survive. They don't necessarily help people thrive. So during that recruitment process, we need to make sure that we are looking at multiple different avenues and multiple different ways. So whether that's asking during a process, uh, does somebody identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, but also contexting that, that it's not just for a tick the box exercise, it's because then they will get additional support. So they might have an Indigenous mentor or an Indigenous recruitment per person who can sit in the interview with them to help them explain, whether it's about looking at different avenues. So rather than just putting out a job ad with imagery on it, it's tapping into, you know, VTAC funding or putting through school-based trainees or starting that pilot programs earlier. So Dexo, for example, we actually run our own training program. So we actually don't do it through a recruitment process at all. We work with job active providers to ensure that we get a great range of Indigenous employees who probably haven't had work experience in the hospitality industry before. We put them through a couple of weeks of TAFE programs and then put them through our recruitment process. So organisations have to think differently in this space um, in order to, I guess, not be just perceived as tokenistic. It's really interesting that you're doing that and supporting training directly. Um, what benefits do you see in terms of building a workforce which is inclusive to Indigenous employees? 
Uh, so let's start off by saying we're in a talent war, right? Everybody knows that this is actually um, an employee's uh, market right now. So by tapping into those, we are able to tap into skill shortages and other different ty- diverse talent pools um, to make sure that we are being able to bring in that broad range of talents into our organisation. Um you know, when it is that employee's market, we also know that creating environments where Indigenous employees or any minority demographic, for example, feel supported. We also reduce turnover, which ultimately increases employee engagement and lowers overhead costs. So there's actually business bottom line reasons for doing this as well. I think the second reason, if I can just continue for a sec, is that it's also, and this is a predominantly an operational um, impact and that's the space that I work in, but, you know, having a feeling of inclusion also improves psychological safety, which we know improves physical safety. So ensuring that people feel like they can bring their whole selves to work often means that people are physically safer and therefore reducing your incidence on site. And that's interesting, actually. In our research, we found that it was over 60% of working Australians felt they couldn't be themselves or their true selves in the workplace. Uh, And it was because they didn't feel safe or didn't feel that they could trust their colleagues uh, not to treat them differently uh, or not to discriminate. Yeah, that psychological safety is such a hard space, um, but so important. When you've got it right, the business benefits just continue to flow on. And and that, I guess, we also have varying levels of education around different social groups, particularly around Indigenous groups. What resources or, or ways uh, can you think of that will help other employees and managers and workplaces, I guess, improve that education and understanding and, and openness uh, to making the environment safer? So I like using the word intentional, right? If an organisation is genuine about this, they have to be intentional in the way that they're doing it. Uh, But that takes effort. It's hard, it takes time, and it does, you're right, it takes resources. But you also have to think smart because you have to think outside the box, which hence why that diversity of thought is so important. So let me give you an example of what that means from a Sodexo perspective. Um, So we work in Weeper. It's a huge mining town, far north Queensland, uh, and it has an Indigenous population of just shy of 20%. Now, in 2017, we were struggling to maintain our local Indigenous workforce. We had about 12%, but attrition was high, absentee was high, um, meaning that, you know, maintaining that number was becoming really tricky. So we set ourselves a target. So step one in being intentional is that you've got to say things out loud. You have to make it public. So we set our target of 20%. And so we had to get intentional in the actions of what we were doing. So we employed a local resident as our Indigenous Community Relations Manager. She worked alongside operation as an equal, not as a PR, sorry, not as a a subordinate. She worked as an equal. But we also had to think further. So we had to change our recruitment. Now, up until that point, we had been running our recruitment out of Brisbane, which meant that everything was online and over the phone for our um, interview process. But candidates who were interviewing over the phone and who are expected to apply online it just caused too many barriers for them from WEPA. So, you know, we knew that often people didn't have access to technology to be able to apply for their jobs. They didn't understand the questions that they were potentially asked um, during the process and they didn't feel culturally safe to be answering some of it because often English is their second or third language in WEPA. 
to resolve that, we intentionally changed our recruitment and selection process. Job ads were no longer um, advertised online. They were placed up in areas around the town. So it might have been the bakery or the fruit shop or the supermarket to improve awareness of what opportunities were within Sodexo. Applicants were then encouraged to go into the Sodexo office where they could access a computer with stable internet connection or they could also just, if they hadn't a friend or a family who was already a Sodexo employee, they could um, interview with them. During the interview process, they would sit down with our Indigenous Liaison member as well as a member of operations to make sure that you know any um, applicants who weren't feeling very comfortable um, because they're in unfamiliar settings were able to in- interact and engage with people who looked and felt like them, right? Um, but the next part of all of that is then the pre-employment. So I won't deny that Sodexo's pre-employment process can be um, at times quite long and that is especially for WEPA because they also have to do our customers' pre-employment. Uh, this meant that it was a lot of it online and it was pretty intense um, in terms of the questions and what they're expected to take up. So instead we changed it. We are intentional in changing it. We looked at ways that we could run it face-to-face. We worked with our customers to simplify the pre-employment processes. All of these actions, it took time and it took effort and it took resources away from other things, but we were so committed to that 20% target that it was worth doing. So I'm really proud to say that was in 2017, we were sitting at around 12%. By 2020, we had got up to over 40% um, of our workforce. So by being intentional, we do have those opportunities to really shift the dial. I um the the whole concept of intention is really interesting and I'll come back to that in a second but just to stay on the changes or improvements that Sodexo made um I guess if you are recruiting or have a presence in those uh communities or or areas that have a larger indigenous population it may be easier to be very conscious of that and to be very proactive in making those changes. But what about in other, let's say, more built up or metro areas, what what indicators may be there that you do need to make change or you can make improvements or even identifying what barriers are existing? So it's a great question and I think it probably comes back to the same types of principles though, that you have to be able to listen and you have to be able to act. So people often assume that, um, you know, the highest populations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are outside of the metropolitan regions. We actually know that um, from a density perspective, sure that may be, but from a population size, the highest um, proportions are actually metropolitan Melbourne and Sydney. So if we're not tapping into those markets, then we're actually missing a huge opportunity. In terms of the barriers, though, you need to go out and ask. So um, I'm a big advocate for understanding people who are already in our business, what's like helped them to get there and what's hindered them and using their advice. Um, As I say, I've got a great team of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander team members who help me also go out to the community and understand from the community's perspective what more we could be doing. So you have to still be, and I'll use the word again, intentional, um, but you have to be proactive in trying to go out and understand what those barriers are and then acting upon that. 
two really good points there. There is that common misperception uh, of where Indigenous uh, peoples are actually living. Um, So it's really interesting to hear that the population is so great in those metro areas and probably gives us more reason to be very conscious and, as you say, intentional uh, around providing that access and support. Uh, The other one there is talking to the employees or population themselves. Uh, Often it is something that's overlooked and we do come up with assumptions and it may not necessarily be right or be what different populations need. Um, I want to now go back to, as I said, this uh, concept of intention and being intentional. Whose responsibility is that? (laughs) Uh, Everybody's. Right. So um, uh, maybe if I think about it from how do you drive that? So, uh, you know, we look at it for intentionality. It needs to be, you need to intentionally put it into your business strategy, inclusion as a concept. Um, Putting inclusion as a concept, whether that's Indigenous inclusion or broader inclusion, and connecting it back into your business strategy means that it becomes front of mind. But you also need to drive that intentionality through every single layer of your business. So you can't just have a top-down approach. You need to have also a bottom-up approach. So you need to be able to support your frontline managers or your middle management or whatever you would like to call them to understand how they can be doing better. You need to support your employees to understand how they can ask more questions. And this shouldn't just be during Reconciliation Week or NAIDOC Week. We need to be celebrating and we need to be understanding these diverse perspectives all year round because that will help drive that culture and inclusion, which, again, it's probably, you know, it's uh, it's a vicious circle but in a positive. It, it helps each other. So by being intentional means that you get greater inclusion. By being having greater inclusion, it means that people feel more comfortable to bring their whole selves to work, which in turn drives different perspectives, which helps bring in different and more, I guess, diverse populations into your organisation. I mean... People are busy already, though, um, and and if we're talking about uh, you know leadership right down to you know the most junior people in an organisation having that intention and and being responsible, who helps everyone uh, be mindful of that? Um, is is that your role or those working in diversity and inclusion, or do we just give the directive and expect everyone to be conscious of it? So I. Th- think it probably depends on how mature an organisation is in this space. When, and for me, I'm very fortunate. I work in a, like an organisation that takes this space so seriously. But if you are able to drive that intentionality you're able to link it to your business strategy. And all of a sudden, inclusion becomes just as important as your bottom line or your safety metrics or any other uh, data that may get collected. And as I said before, we also know that inclusion enables people to have greater engagement. So it reduces turnover. So even if you would like to put a dollar value on it, um, you can look at your attrition rate and look at how much that's costing you in recruitment uh, and use that as your reasons why. I also go back to the point that we are in a talent war right now. So if 
you know, your recruitment team is smart. And again, I'm lucky to work for an organisation who has a smart recruitment team, but they will be wanting to reduce their um, turnover or at least be able to tap into different markets. So they're filling those roles much quicker um, than they may be able to otherwise. So you've got to change the conversation. And that probably means that you have to change it at multiple different levels. So for your frontline managers, and I hear what you're saying, people are time poor. We also know that middle managers are often the hardest ones to get across the line when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But if you talk to them about, well, this is going to save you time in terms of recruitment, which is going to save you lost time. It's going to improve your psychological safety. So therefore it's improving your site safety. Uh, There are so many different ways that you can talk to those frontline managers to get them on board and help them understand why they should be prioritising this. At Sodexo, we actually include um, diversity moments just as often as we include safety moments in our toolboxes. Um, So it starts to become on equal par to some other metrics that have probably always been seen as more important than what inclusion is. Can you explain to me just there what diversity moments are? Yeah, of course. So a diversity moment is, uh, so in an operational context, um, a lot of organisations would run toolboxes and those toolboxes might be how you pass down information um, through, um, you know, around different corporate settings or different issues. So from a safety perspective, safety moments might be around, you know, slips, trips and falls or slips, trips and hazards, um, cutting fingers, those types of incidents. When you look at it from a diversity moment perspective, it might be around um, the concept of mental health and why mental health is important. So how we should be proactively working on our mental health and not just reactively working on our mental health. If you look at it from an Indigenous perspective, it might be a diversity moment might be focused around reconciliation. Um, but it's also actually looking at it in the broader context of what more you could be doing with your local traditional owner groups in the um, regions in which you work. And I'm going to jump around a bit here. Uh, You mentioned having a a strong recruitment team uh, and we know that the recruitment function internally at companies is being built up more and more in more recent times. So you can have a really smart, um, proactive recruitment team who are, I guess, making it well known or promoting diversity and inclusion to Indigenous populations. But then sometimes, you know, after a hire and during that onboarding and even post-onboarding, it all kind of falls apart a bit. So how can we make sure that that link is is there from recruitment to internally in the organisation that it and that it's continued through? Yeah, so at Sodexo, we actually also then continue that through our induction. Um, and we talk about it quite heavily because we know that the people who we want to work in Sodexo are not just Indigenous people, but it's also people who support reconciliation. So if you don't support reconciliation and you don't support diverse workforces, you know, you're probably not the right cultural fit for our organisation. So we talk about it through that space. We've got Indigenous mentors who work with our employees on site. So if Indigenous employees are having issues, then they can be um, addressed by somebody who understands who's been there. And again, I'm really proud to say that those Indigenous mentors have you know, we haven't bought expertise, we've trained expertise internally. So they've come from the front line, they understand what it's like to work in the front line, they can relate to the issues. But those Indigenous mentors also play a really important role in building culturally competent leaders on site as well. So we're never going to be able to have Indigenous mentors on site all the time. But what we can have is culturally competent leaders who may be able to at least empathise or understand a little bit more of what's going on. 
There's one uh, topic that I really was looking forward to, to raising today, and it's that there is often a lot of trepidation around the language that we use. We don't want to offend other people. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of sensitivities. What I guess, what are some of the words or topics that we should just completely steer clear of and never impose uh, on our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander teammates? So first off, let me start by saying I'm a non-Indigenous woman working in the Indigenous space. So um, this has been a space that I've probably had to juggle with, but I think there's probably two parts. One, we have to be willing to make mistakes, right? So we only know that by making mistakes, by asking questions and then responding when somebody teaches us or helps us understand, that's how we can improve. But the fact that... um, you know, we are kind of in an interesting time right now, right? Because corporate Australia is potentially playing that educational space um, as the, at the same time that we're expecting employees to come along for the journey. What I mean by that is certainly when I was at school, we didn't have any any context or any understanding of Aboriginal history. I certainly didn't have elders come in and do welcome to countries for me, unlike what school's seeing today. So we are educating our employees around sorry business. We're educating our employees around reconciliation. We're educating our employees around cultural nuances within the Indigenous community. But at the same time, we're expecting them to behave. So we have to be willing to meet halfway Saying that, though, there is still language that gets used and the fact that we've got AFL footballers still getting called monkeys um, out on site, if people are still using that language, then I feel like people have been living under a rock, to be perfectly honest. The fact that people still feel that that type of explicit racism is acceptable, um, regardless of the context, is just absolutely mortifying to me. So I think that, you know, it's a bit of give and take, right? People have to be um, able to have that conversation, have that maturity to understand that you're going to be able to make mistakes and that is okay, but we also have to learn from that. And as a community, we need to be learning a lot quicker and a lot faster than what we are right now. Yeah, I completely agree. No uh, touching on it when I was in school either. Um, But I think it is becoming uh, more of a topic that's talked about, which is really great. Disappointing that there are some who are still uh, carrying on the way that you, you mentioned, but it does look like Uh, vast improvements are being made, which is really fantastic. Another big question I had was how can we or what can we do to encourage or empower uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples to feel they can be their true self at work? So I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all model. Again, I'll come back to the point that I think policies help people survive. They don't necessarily make people thrive. And I think that organisations have come some ways around policies, but there is still a long way to go. So if we look at it from a gender perspective, we have talked about, um, you know, pay equality and we've talked about parental leave and we have policies now that support those. But from an Indigenous perspective, not every company still has policies around sorry business or sorry leave. Um, So there is definitely some, uh, for lack of a better term, hygiene factors that organisations can play in helping Indigenous um, Australians bring themselves to work. But again, we need to be able to talk about this all the time and we need to help create culturally competent leaders, whether that's a a people leader or just an individual um, contributor in businesses. And just jumping back a bit, you've mentioned sorry business and sorry leave. Can you briefly describe or or define what those are for us? 
Sure. So uh, sorry, business and sorry, leave. Sorry, business is um, often, it's always after a funeral. So people will often go back out into the community, onto country, and we'll do a whole heap of cultural, and it varies across Australia, um, but we'll undertake a whole heap of cultural um, initiatives um, during that time. And it's a way to celebrate the life of uh, the person who's just passed. So it's a really important time. Sorry, business can take up to four weeks. Sometimes longer, depending on the community, um, and so it's really important that organisations enable people to have sorry leave um, to be able to go out and do those activities when they need to. It's really interesting and and important, and I I guess would hedge my bets that a lot of organisations don't know about that or or don't support it due to lack of that knowledge. So with Sorry business and sorry leave, I mean, that's a very extended period of time. How do you manage or balance, um, I guess, the non-Indigenous employees who may want to take an extended period of leave as well? What what are we saying to them and, and managing expectations there? Yeah, so again, it's around the organisation and their maturity in this space. Um, I think that anybody who um, is you know, culturally sensitive is probably not wanting to attend a funeral for any longer than they necessarily have to, right? So you need to be able to understand that it's not just about going off and doing, you know, fun activities. It's not about slacking off. It's a really inherent part of people's culture um, and it's about respect to them. In terms of those non-Indigenous employees, again, I'll come back to it. If people don't understand it, then for some organisations, they probably don't have a space in those organisations. They don't meet the values behaviours of those organisations. But I think it's also about balancing the flexibility amongst others. So in operational roles, it can be challenging, um, but, you know, you need to be able to have avenues to support that when and where you can. Certainly at Sodexo, we use contingent workforce when we need to, to be able to support people to be able to take that time off. Um, For non-Indigenous employees who might want to take extended periods of leave, there is always other leave possibilities out there for you as well. I'm so pleased that you've been able to highlight some of these things today and really educate everyone uh, on some of the these different aspects. I do want to wrap up with a final question, which is how we finish every episode of High Potential with Indeed. What will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? I think people have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Uh, I think it's really easy to get stuck in your comfort zone um, and status quo is sticky, right? It's, It's comfortable, it's easy to do. But in order to really drive that inclusive workforce, um, we need to make sure that we are kind of comfortable with that uncomfortable, whether that's having challenging conversations, whether that's knowing that decisions in diverse teams are going to take longer, um, but the actual implementation of those decisions often takes a shorter amount of time, whether it's about knowing that um, the path forward is no longer going to be linear, but it might be, you know, sideways, upways, backwards and um, forwards. Embedding diversity is hard. It pushes people outside of their comfort zones um, and the mental confrontation that people undergo is considered, I guess, challenging. But for me, this is the absolute necessary process to be able to create that real functional, inclusive environment as we move forwards. 
That's great. And Jackie, I really want to thank you uh, for joining me today. So grateful that you've been able to share your knowledge and experiences uh, and that which you're doing at Sodexo. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to High Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you've found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.